Father, we pray that you would show yourself to be a consuming fire. But Lord, for us, by your grace, in your mercy, in your kindness, cause this consuming fire not to devour us, but to purify us and to make us Christ-like. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Romans chapter 2 verse 1 is like a hot stove. And having to preach this text is like having to touch a hot stove. So you're going to watch my fingers get burned this morning. And it's going to start right now. Um, I, want to, I want to illustrate the meaning of Romans 2.1, both from what I'm about to read to you and from my own comments about what I'm about to read to you. So this is a biography of J. Gresham Machen. You may have heard of him because of his book, Christianity and Liberalism. And um, in Machen's early days as a teacher, uh, his biographer writes, well, frankly, he makes Machen sound like an arrogant jerk. That's what he makes him sound like. He writes that Machen tried to enliven his classes with comic and at times eccentric behavior. His students, for instance, recalled his habit, this is in class, of reading the morning mail while catching their errors as they declined Greek nouns or parsed verbs. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine standing there trying to parse verbs or decline nouns and your professor is reading his mail and then looking up and saying, nope, you got that part wrong. That would be so infuriating, to me, probably because of my own pride, right? That's why it would anger me. But, and then, while lecturing, Machen would also sometimes bump his head gently against the wall, balance a book on his head, or write an entire congregation, uh, conjugation backwards on the blackboard. What a jerk. What a jerk. What an arrogant jerk. And then later, later as he, as he grow, grew frustrated with the students who failed to show interest in his courses, he admitted that he had lost his youthful illusions. And then he wrote this. This is in a letter to his mother. There was a time, he explained, when I thought I was going to be an exception to the general lot of humanity. You hear the arrogance of those words? There was a time when I thought that I was going to be an exception to the general lot of humanity. Do you see what's happening even as I make these comments on J. Gresham Machen? Romans 2.1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You probably wouldn't have to look very far to find one of my students who might say, what an arrogant jerk. In fact, you may be sitting here right now thinking, what an arrogant <laughs> jerk. And I wouldn't be surprised... I wouldn't be surprised if you could find things that I've written that sound like there was a time when I thought I was going to be an exception to the general lot of humanity. Maybe you've had the same thought. With me, it's going to be different. My life is going to be different than everybody else's. This is, this is where we are. This is who we are. we are. We are arrogant. We think that we are exceptional, and we think that we can stand in judgment on other people. I would invite you to open this morning to Romans chapter 2, and in this passage, 
we are going to see, here's, here's what I think Paul's main point in Romans 2, verses 1 through 11, the passage that we're going to look at. Those who judge others have no defense for themselves. I think that's Paul's main point here in Romans 2, 1 through 11. Those who judge others have no defense for themselves. Life humbled J. Gresham Machen. I, I, I trust that in God's kindness to him, he repented of his youthful arrogance. He repented of thinking that he was going to be an exception to the common lot of humanity. And God's justice will humble us too. As we look at this passage, we will see God's awesome judgment. And our main takeaway needs to be, I should walk in greater humility. In verses 1 through 4, we'll see that God's true judgment leaves sinners without excuse or escape. God's true judgment leaves sinners without excuse or escape. Verses 1 through 4. Let's look together at these verses. Actually, before we look at these verses, let me briefly summarize what Paul has said to this point. So in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 1, Paul has talked about the gospel that's been entrusted to him and his prayerful desire to preach that gospel in Rome. And then, beginning in verse 14, he began to explain why he was obligated and eager. So verse 14, I am under obligation. Verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then in verse 16, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he starts into these three reasons that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Reason number one is in verse 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Reason number two is in verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Reason number three starts in verse 18 and continues right through the passage that we're looking at today. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So it's the revelation of the wrath of God that makes Paul obligated and eager and unashamed to preach the gospel. And he's still explaining that wrath of God when he gets to Romans 2 verse 1. And here in verses 1 through 4, he's saying that God's true judgment leaves sinners without excuse or escape. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. You may have noticed that in chapter 1, verse 20, Paul had said, so they are without excuse. And there, he's talking about these people who... Though they have seen, in verse 20, God's invisible power and his, divine, his eternal power and divine nature, God's invisible attributes, nevertheless, working back from that, in verse 18, they have by their unrighteousness suppressed the truth. So God reveals himself to them, and their response to that is to suppress the truth, and as a result, they're without excuse. And then he goes through all this explanation of idolatrous behavior, the way that people don't relate rightly to God, and then they don't relate, relate rightly to other people in, in the rest of chapter 1. And, and it's kind of like he gets the congregation that, nodding their heads. Yeah, those people are really wicked. And then he closes the trap on them. You're without excuse. They're without excuse, and you're without excuse because you do the same things. What same things is Paul talking about? Therefore, you have no excuse. Before we go to what same things, let's, let's, let, me, let me say a couple more things about this, this no excuse. 
Um, the, the term that's used here is a term, it, it's related to the word that we get our word apologetics for. And, and apologetics is, is what you do when you defend the faith. And so this term, when, it, when Paul writes, therefore you have no excuse, it connotes the idea that if you were to come before a tribunal, if you were, if you were let's say, in a, in, a, in a court of law, and your case were being heard, you would have no defense. You, you have no, no explanatory reasons. You have no mitigating considerations. You are without excuse. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. It's like Paul is saying, look, you have upheld the standard. You have confessed the standard. You have applied the standard to other people. And that standard applies to you too. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now we're to these very same things that Paul is talking about. What very same things does he have in view? Well, look back at verse 31 where you have this phrase, this phrase, those who practice such things. And, and, and before that, you have this catalog of evil. Uh, there, gossips, just sort of starting in the middle. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful around verses 29 and 30. But then working back from that, practicing the very same things. Look back at verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You know, the, the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And there is no time when that's not supposed to be happening. And so any time that we are not feeling that, which is most of the time for us, we are failing at the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Any time that we are not feeling love for our neighbor that is akin to our love for ourselves, we are failing the second greatest commandment. We are not honoring God as God or giving thanks to him. And then working back from that, working back from 121, we go back to 118 and look at the end of verse 18, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We who judge, we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness in the same kinds of ways that those we condemn suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then Paul continues in verse 2. Actually, sorry, I keep getting ahead of myself today. Before I go on to verse 2, I want to consider excuses. Verse 1, therefore you have no excuse, O man. 
every one of you who judges. Let, let's think about some of the excuses, the kinds of excuses that we make. And, and as an illustration of the kinds of excuses that we humans are inclined to make, I want to tell you about some excuses that my son Isaiah, who's just four, and he's really kind of stopped saying this, but when he was like two and three, when he first got to where he could talk, he would make these excuses. We would, we would put him in bed at night, and we would say, okay, Isaiah, it's time for you to go to sleep. And he would say, my pillow's fancy. Your pillow's fancy? What does that even mean, Isaiah? And, and, and he, he never could explain it. He never could explain what he meant by my pillow's fancy. And finally, we had to conclude, we don't think he knows what those words mean. <laughs> we don't think he knows what the word fancy means. He's just making an excuse, isn't he? And then, the, and then there was a time when... Uh, he got, into the, he got into the van, and at that time we had the, this uh, jump seat in the middle row of the van, so you had to climb over the middle, the middle row to get to the back row. And as he climbs over one day, his feet slam on that middle row as he's jumping over. And I said, Isaiah, are you okay? And he said, my shoes are lazy. <laughs> so his explanation for why he didn't get his feet over the, the middle seat were his shoes were lazy. And, and again, I just had to conclude, I don't think he knows what those words mean. <laughs> um, can you imagine standing before the last tribunal and God saying, it's time for you to give an account for yourself. And you saying, well, I, I couldn't love you at those times, Lord, because sin was so compelling. And on that day, reality is going to be so plain. And God's glory and overwhelming goodness and worth of being loved is going to be so clear to us that these words are not even going to make sense. For us to say something like, I couldn't love you at that time because sin was so compelling or whatever, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is for you, it's going to be like my child saying, my pillow's fancy. People aren't even going to be able to compute what we're saying. Or, or if, if we're asked to give an account for the ways that we have not loved our neighbors, and we say, well, I couldn't love my neighbor, Lord, because I was so important to myself. It's not even going to make sense. We are not even going to be able to understand why we acted the way that we did, why we didn't feel what we should have felt. It's going to be like a child saying, my shoes are lazy. It's just an excuse, and it's a pitiful excuse. It's an excuse that has no purchase. It has, it has no traction. It won't get you anywhere. Verse 2, Paul writes, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls. This is the way the ESV renders this. The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The text literally says, we know that the judgment of God, of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. According to truth. So the word truth is rendered rightly here. Where have we seen this word truth prior to this? Look back at verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We've done that. We're guilty. We who judge have done the same things. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. The judgment of God is according to truth. We are going to be 
held accountable for this. And then back again to verse 18. We've suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. The judgment of God is according to truth. Let me just summarize verses 1 and 2 with two statements. Number one, statement number one, verse one, no excuse, no defense. There is, there is no valid objection that can be made to the judgment. There's no valid explanation that can be offered for our failure to love God with all that we are, honor him as God, give thanks to him, live before him. We are without excuse. And then verse two, it's a true judgment. The, the judgment of God is according to truth. And that brings us to verse 3. And and we can summarize this with a simple phrase too that boils down to this. No escape. Look at verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You think you're going to avoid the judgment of God? There, There is no escape, Paul is saying. This is a rhetorical question that is designed to force in upon our consciousness the realization we are not getting away. We can't flee. We can't hide. There is nowhere for us to go. We will not escape God's justice. So how how does Paul want us to respond to this? Uh, I'm going to give you four phrases. Maybe you can Maybe you want to jot these down. I don't know. I think these are four phrases that ought to characterize us as sinners if we want to be repentant sinners. These are four phrases I submit to you that will make every relationship in your life better. These are four phrases that will make you, you, if you say these words and you mean these words, these, these four phrases will make it so that you have a relationship with God. Here's the first one. I sinned. I sinned. You're taking responsibility for what you did. You're not passing it off on somebody else. You're not explaining that somebody else made you do this. I sinned. I did it. I'm guilty. 2-1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. I sinned. I sinned in judging J. Grisham Machen. I do the same things he did. I sinned. I'm a sinner. I got no excuse. Phrase number two. Now you got to mean this one. I'm sorry. I recognize it was wrong of me. I recognize that it hurts other people, and I'm sorry. Number three, I repent. I repent. What this means is, I've done this, I know it's wrong, I'm sorry about it, and I'm going the other direction. I'm going to try to go the other direction. I repent. And then number four, please forgive me. That's all we can say in response to Romans 2, 1 through 3. I sinned, I'm sorry, I repent, please forgive me. If you'll talk like that to the people in your life, you'll get along with them a lot better. If you're willing to say those words, I mean, sometimes those words are hard to say because because we're acknowledging, I'm a sinner. The problem here is me. Maybe you heard that story about G.K. Chesterton. He was invited, uh, this newspaper um, invited these leading intellectuals of the day to to write an essay um, explaining what was wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton wrote two little words, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton mailed it in. I'm what's wrong with the world. I'm a sinner. That's what's wrong with the world. There is no escaping God's justice. 
There's, there's no escape. And then um, there's this, this, this reality in verse 4 that is a glorious reality. So look at, look at verse 4. So Paul has just asked, verse 3, do you think you're going to get away? And then he asks in verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So this question is assuming that you're dealing with somebody who's unrepentant. This question is, is assuming that this is a person who's trying to escape, and what they're doing as they refuse to say those four phrases I just went through, I sinned, I'm sorry, I repent, please forgive me. As they refuse to say those phrases, what they're doing is they're despising. That's another way you could render this. They're despising the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God. The wealth of those things. This verse indicates, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This verse indicates that it's a kindness of God when someone is caught in their transgression and brought to repentance. It's a kindness of God when God graciously leads someone to repentance. You know, interestingly, about this verse, we could say a number of things about it. Um, this verse indicates that when somebody repents, it's a result of God's kindness to them. And I want you to hear a couple of other statements in the Bible about repentance. Listen to Acts chapter 5, verse 31. God exalted him, talking about Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That verse says that Jesus gives repentance. Listen to Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, this is the church in Jerusalem that's hearing this report from Peter. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also... God has granted repentance that leads to life. God exalted Jesus to his right hand to give repentance. And then God granted the repentance. Jesus granted the repentance to the Gentiles. And then this verse says, it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. You know what I would conclude from this? If somebody's unrepentant, they haven't received this gift you know what I would further conclude from this? If I want somebody to repent, I need to pray. I need to pray that God in his kindness would lead them to repent. I need to pray that God in his lavish mercy would give to them the gift of repentance. Because if he doesn't give the gift, if he doesn't grant it, if he doesn't show that kindness to this person individually, it's not going to happen you're going to have the other thing back in Romans 1 that Paul was describing. God giving people over to their own way. It's God doing both things, right? It's God giving people... Look back at verse, verse 24 here. Therefore, God gave them up in the desires or lusts of their hearts. God gives people over or he gives them the gift of repentance. It's God who's doing the giving in both cases. So what Paul is saying here in Romans 2, verse 4, is that there is a way out. 
You got no excuse, verse 1. The judgment is true and just, verse 2. There is nowhere you can hide, verse 3. But there's kindness. There's kindness in you even hearing these words, verse 4. There is kindness in you even learning that there's a possibility that you could turn, verse 4. God is kindly lavishing a wealth of patience and forbearance on you if you hear of the possibility of repentance. And, and it's obvious, isn't it, that this is, this is what Paul wants to, people to do. This is what Paul wants people to realize. Paul wants people to realize that there's, there's no... You're, you're not going to be able to stand before God and give an account of your sin such that God says, oh, well, in that case, we'll just clear this one. He did those things. He's not repenting of those things, but we'll just let these sins go. It's not going to happen. you got no excuse. Nor... Nor are you going to be able to say, as I was reading about this, I was looking for anecdotes about, about justice. And I read of one, this lady came before Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And um, he was a heavy drinker. And this woman is being tried before him. And he's the highest court in the land. He's the king. He's the highest court of appeal. And um, he, she doesn't like the verdict because it's unjust when he renders it. And she says, I appeal. And he says, to whom? There's, there's no Supreme Court above me. And she says, from Philip drunk to Philip sober. And it, it caught him off guard, and he gave the case further consideration. Well, that's not how it is with God, is it? God's judgment, verse 2, rightly falls. It's according to truth, literally. You got no excuse. You can't. You can't somehow argue around the just and true judgment of God. You got no place to hide. Really, you got two choices. You can either accept God's kindness, which is wooing you to repentance. Even now, if you are hearing the sound of my voice, God is kindly, mercifully saying to you, don't you want to take this opportunity to turn from your sin? Don't you want to take this opportunity to embrace my kindness to you? You can choose that, or you can say, I'll take my chances. I hope you won't choose that second one. So in verses 1 through 4, Paul is explaining that God's true judgment leaves sinners without excuse and without escape. I was listening to uh, Rico Tice, uh, uh, British evangelist preach recently, and he told this story about this woman who was going through this, this Christianity explained course that he was leading. I, I hope you'll pray that tonight as people come, we've got these response cards that Anna made up, and one of the, one of the boxes that you can check is, I'm interested in joining an exploratory Bible study. And, and I hope that we'll have so many people that we have to draft I hope we fill up the class that I hope Mike France leads, and I hope we fill up the class that I hope we go. We, I hope we got to start new classes in response to this. So pray that people would check that box. Rico Tice was talking about how he's leading one of these classes, and there's this this woman who's really put together. She's a professional woman. She's well dressed. She's really sharp. She's intelligent. And 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 one night as they're going through the study, she gets up and and she she leaves the room, and it's clear that she's emotionally distraught. 
And he, and he said, I'm just going to go out and, and check on her and see that everything is okay. And so he steps out into the hall and he finds this woman and she's just floods of tears. She's just weeping. And this is what he said were her words. I'm so ashamed. I can't be- believe the way I've treated God. That's repentance. When we're so ashamed and we're appalled at the way that we have responded to our loving and saving creator, our Father. In verses 5 through 11, Paul shows that, that God's judgment is just and that he shows no favoritism. So he's continuing to assume that the person he's addressing is unrepentant. And so he says in verse 5, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So again, he's, he's, he's using terminology that we've seen already in this passage. Let's consider this heart, according to your hardness and unrepentant heart. That's the terminology of verse 24 of chapter 1. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. That's what it is to have a hard and impenitent heart, an unrepentant heart. It's to be given over to the desires of your heart. If that's where you are, you're storing up wrath, you're treasuring up God's justice against you. On the last day. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. This goes back to 118 again. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And and it connects up with verse 17 as well. Listen to the words of of verse 5 again. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 17, in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's the justice of God against sin, the justice of God against sinners that's revealed as Christ dies on the cross. And... And I, I trust you can, you can identify with this impulse to treasure things. Maybe you treasure photographs. I can remember growing up, my mother saying, if there's ever a house fire, what she was going after was the photographs. Maybe you think in terms of money when you think of treasuring things up. Maybe you think of memories when you think of treasuring something up. You don't want to be treasuring up wrath against you. And do you see what causes the storing up of wrath, hardness of heart, and an impenitent heart. How do we respond to this? We respond to this by saying, oh Lord, make my heart soft. Oh God, give to me the the gift of repentance. Cause me to respond to your kindness by repenting of my sin. Before we go on to verses 6 through 11, which kind of form a a unit, I think. Uh, Verses 5 through 11, I think, is the second part of this text. 
But verses 6 through 11, look at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. And then verse 11, God shows no partiality. So I think that this, this kind of forms a, a subunit uh, within this text. Before we go on to that, I'm going to offer you some, some applications growing out of verses 1 through 5. Here, here's the first one that, that really connects up with verse 1. Embrace humility with re- reference to others. Embrace humility with reference to others. Don't be judgmental. We, we, it's like we're spring-loaded to be judgmental. And, and we need to work against that. Let's embrace humility with reference to our brothers and sisters. Embrace humility with reference to others. Number two, embrace repentance with reference to yourself. Embrace repentance with reference. It should be easy for us to say, I sinned. I'm sorry. I repent. Please forgive me. Those words ought to flow out of our lips frequently. I, I think... I think the measure of our godliness will be how easy it is for us to say those words. I sinned. I'm sorry for the way that my sin harms you. I repent. Please forgive me. So embrace humility with reference to others. Embrace repentance with reference to yourself. And then number three, take comfort in the truth of God's justice. The judgment, verse 2, is according to to truth. You can take comfort in that. There's great comfort in the fact that God's justice, God's judgment is according to truth. Maybe you've been watching these, these hearings. Brett Kavanaugh has been on trial this week, and these allegations are made against him, and there aren't witnesses, but they're awful allegations. And he doesn't, I mean, he can't close the door on the fact that this never could have happened. If Maybe if he was out of that city when it alleged to, but he So it's just his claim against her claim. And you're stuck there. And people are on both sides of this. It's it's interesting, as I was, again, as I was looking for anecdotes about this, as I was reading on justice, I I read a a story about the Roman emperor, Julian the the Apostate, who reigned back in the 300s AD. And and, uh, the story is told that there was a provincial governor, so he's the emperor, there's a provincial governor who was accused of embezzlement, and the governor is strongly denying the accusations. And he's put on trial, and his evidence couldn't be faulted. And eventually the judge, who wanted to condemn him, because the money had gone somewhere, the judge was irritated by the absence of proof and, and the, the way that the accused man continued to protest that he was innocent. Finally, he turns to the emperor and he demands, can anyone ever be proved guilty if it, if it is enough just to deny the charge? And the emperor said, can anyone be proved innocent if it is enough just to accuse him? So there you are in that dilemma that we're seeing play out in in our country. But that's not how it is with God's justice. God knows. God knows, and his judgment is according to truth. So application, take comfort in God's justice. And then uh, fourth out of this, I would say, pray for a sense of obligation and an eagerness and an unashamed boldness to preach the gospel. Because I think Paul is still explaining why it is that he's unashamed of the gospel. And then we've got these verses between verses 6 and 11. And in these verses, what Paul teaches here is that God repays glory to those who do good and wrath to those who do evil. Look at verse 7. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his work. 
works. Verse 7, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. I have to point this out, sorry. Just feel sort of a uh, need to say these things. Uh, verses, verse 7 matches verse 10. Verses 8 and 9 match each other. Did you see that there? There's a chiasm. Uh, verse 7 um, talks about the, 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 re- the reward that the righteous earn. Verse 10 talks about the reward that the righteous earn. Verses 8 and 9 both describe the wrath that the wicked earn. Look at at what this text says there in verse 7. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. I think what these guys are seeking, look back at verse 23. They exchange the glory of the immortal God. I think seeking glory and honor and immortality means seeking God, seeking to honor God, seeking to obey the first commandment always. Um, in, in this weekend's paper, there was a, a review of, of a, a book about this battle of the, the chosen reservoir in, in North Korea. So when, when uh, the Americans were in South Korea uh, tried to, trying to stop the encroach of the Chinese, um, as, as the Americans forced their way into North Korea, uh, MacArthur, General MacArthur, uh, began to receive reports that the Chinese were coming. And, and according, to these, according to the historical record, this is really not something that can be disputed, it was MacArthur's arrogance and pride that resulted in him saying, we're going forward anyway. I mean, the Chinese vastly outnumbered the Americans in the region. And, and because he was proud and because he was so full of himself and so, because he was surrounded by yes men, MacArthur would not listen. Fortunately for the Americans, there was a general under MacArthur named Oliver Smith. And this guy saw what was happening. This guy saw that the Americans were about to get slaughtered. And so as he advanced under MacArthur's orders, he made preparations for a valiant retreat. He prepared the way for the Americans to be able to get out easily. And and you know what is a result of this? We look back today and we heap shame on Douglas MacArthur because of his self-seeking pride and arrogance that resulted in the death of many people, many young men under his command. And we look back at Oliver Smith and we say, there's an example of somebody seeking glory and honor. And and, I mean, I don't know if he was a Christian, but uh, he's doing the right thing and he's honored in response to it. What we want to do is we want to look at our life and look at our sins and look at the things that tempt us And we want to shine the bright light of Scripture on those things. And we want to ask ourselves, am I exercising patience in well-doing, seeking glory, honor, and immortality? Or is this self-seeking and disobedient to the truth and instead obedience to unrighteousness? And then we want to see that the outcome of those two things is inevitable. It's unavoidable. 
We don't want, verse 9, tribulation and distress for those who do evil. Rather, we want, verse 10, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. But you and I know the truth, don't we? We're sinners. We have no excuse. And here's, here's the remarkable truth of Christianity. It's like we come into the, the throne room of judgment. And the one who is seated on the throne opens the scrolls. And our case is called. And we step forward. And amazingly, against all expectation, against anything that we deserve, the man of God's right hand, the King of kings and Lord of lords, steps forward and says, this one's mine. I paid his penalty in full. He could ne- the only way he could pay his penalty is by going to hell forever. But I lived a righteous life. And I sought glory and honor and immortality. And I did good. And that's credited to his account because of his faith. And then I went to the cross and I bore the full rate the full weight of your divine, almighty wrath in his place. If you're a believer in Jesus, that's what's true of you. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer of Jesus, that's what we're holding out for you. We're telling you one day there's going to be a tribunal. One day there's going to be a court. And you're going to stand before God and you're going to have no excuse. And you're going to have no place to hide. And the judgment's going to be true. And Jesus is going to be there. And if you'll repent and make him your Lord and Savior, if you'll repent and put your faith in him now, he will step forward on your behalf. But if you don't, he says the Father has entrusted to the Son all judgment. And he is going to execute the true judgment of Almighty God. Look at these words again in verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 9, glory, I'm sorry, verse 10, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Can you imagine the glory of the reward that the Lord Jesus has earned? And that's the reward that will be, belong to those who are found in him. Father, would you make us people who are so burdened to proclaim this gospel under a sense of obligation because it's so good, because your love is so strong, because your promises are so high and deep and wide and far-reaching. Lord, make it so that we cannot keep this in. And Father, out of that sense of obligation, make us eager to obey you, eager to seek to be making disciples of the Lord Jesus and make us unashamed. Whatever rebels may say about you, whatever, however a bunch of condemned criminals may mock us for holding fast to the truth, Lord, make us unashamed in the face of their disapprobation. Make us those, Lord, who are glad to proclaim the truth of the scriptures, glad to teach your word, glad to celebrate it. And Father, make us fully confident in the Lord Jesus, 
in the glory that he has earned. We could never begin to thank you for the kindness that you have lavished upon us in leading us to repentance. Keep us from ever taking credit for your gift. Lord, we didn't deserve this. You've been so good to us. We worship you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.